Welcome to the Space Cave, the number one podcast in the world. Thank you for supporting the show. This show is brought to you by contributions from listeners just like you. It is ad-free and will continue to be that way. And if you'd like to ensure that, you can uh, visit the Patreon, which uh, you can also access through thespacecave.com. Apologies for uh, a couple weeks there, a little bit of downtime one of which was just a scheduling issue. The second, uh, I left for the weekend and somehow managed to not bring a whole entire bag that had a computer and recording equipment in it. So that put us back a little bit. I apologize. Kind of the nice thing of, one, having an audience of mostly introverts. Two, not having this uh, global, sensational a fanatical type of audience. Not a lot of uh, complaints or whatever you'd say. People writing in, hey, this episode isn't out yet. It's 10 minutes late. And uh, which is nice. Uh, Not to take that for granted. I'm not going to suddenly start putting them out here and there. I'll keep up the normal schedule. But anyway, if you were wondering where the show went for a bit, that's the reason why. Part of it was I wanted... These next two episodes are 155 and 156. For whatever reason, I have it in my head that multiples of 52 are a little bit more worthwhile than 50, which is asinine. I'm going to discontinue that because here we are in September. I think the show started three years ago in July, if I'm not mistaken, which would mean just over the course of time, those 52s get off quite a bit. But the multiples of 50, I think, stay relatively within the range of being Somewhat of an anniversary. So anyway, I thought these multiples of 52, I really wanted the 56, 156, to be the subject that we are covering now over the next two episodes with uh, a gentleman who has an unbelievable sort of array of skills and knowledge and an educational background that just will floor you. He teaches anatomy but he's also one of the world's premier uh, studiers of um, pterodons, which would be like pterodactyls and things like that. And so he's extraordinarily knowledgeable. We met at a panel where we uh, came up after a screening of the most recent Jurassic World movie. And uh, I, I think I, I was sorely miscast. I was just making jokes and things, which I suppose was perhaps my... my um, role within, but he was uh, fielding all these questions. Little kids dressed up. One of them had a bow tie on and these really cool glasses. And he didn't, it wasn't doing like a Bill Nye thing. He was doing kind of his own, I wear this bow tie because I was essentially born in it. He just looked like scientists from birth, which I love that when you see a little kid and you'll hear that Mike was a lot like that as a kid. And it just excites me that he grew into a person who's still as enthusiastic, who still loves the subject, and uh, knows so much about it. This this episode is all I was hoping it would be for uh, our sort of three-year culmination 
uh, on dinosaurs, a subject that for whatever reason, haven't gotten to until now. So a little tip of the cap and a wave to my good friend, Brian Gutman, who still has a seat here whenever he gets out to Los Angeles to also chat about dinosaurs. He has no education and it just loves them. And I was always kind of putting it aside so that he and I could chat about it, but doesn't look like that's going to happen. However, I think he'll also love this because this dude knows all the stuff. He's the most knowledgeable dinosaur person I've ever met. And I don't say that with any hyperbole. So without further ado, here's part one with Dr. Michael Habib. Michael Habib. Say it correctly. Man? You're in, man. All right. You're in there. About I'm to... in there. Cool. Oh, what? good. They're not going to hear what's going on. And I'm not great. We have cans today. And I, re- I, my whole life, opened plenty of cans, but now doing it next to a microphone, trying to get that really Foley-esque, great snapping sound, I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what goes. Sometimes I can do it, but I can't reliably snap a can open and like, that's how it sounds. It seems to sometimes limp open or slowly just kind of... So here, I'm going to do my best here. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Let's see how mine sounds. Let's see how mine sounds here. Got to get it, get under the tap here. Ooh, yeah, the, that was kind of delayed. Yeah, a little delay. Got a little hiss on there. Yeah, yeah that's good. Nice. And this is um, called A Terrible Idea Hazy IPA from Fieldwork Brewing, which I'd never heard of before. I don't really know. I'm trying to look and see where they're based. But it has, it has some uh, cave people next to mammoths and... I don't think... Well, there is one I showed you where a person is next to a pterodactyl, which I'm guessing upsets you just a little bit. A little bit. It hurts me a little bit on the inside. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would say lose the humans on that. It's yeah. Just, just, see the, just, just see the pterosaurs. I mean, come on. But, uh, but yes, it mostly seems to be placed vaguely in the Pleistocene with apparently time-traveling pterosaur. Okay. So, yeah, tell me... Well, for, I want to get... I, I don't know much about the... I say Pleistocene, but you say Pleistocene? Pleistocene. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just... I'm being crazy. There was a period where I was trying to memorize, and I'm sure at some point in school I had to know all of the uh, periods, Jurassic and uh, otherwise. And now I, I realize that I don't know any of them. I've <laughs> they've escaped me. And I hear little tidbits nowadays about like, oh, you know, the time between this dinosaur and this dinosaur. And I'm trying to think of the one, maybe it's T-Rex and either Triceratops or Stegosaurus is further apart than dinosaurs and humans. To, and that gave me a weird perspective of like, oh yeah, 165 million years. We tend to think, uh, or at least I think the, the lay person, me included, would feel like, well, they all were started. 165 million years went by and they closed up shop. But in actuality, it was like all of life all the time. Die outs, new species, etc. Yeah, I think there's this, um, there's this interesting perspective that I think if you start talking about uh, you know, sort of durations and, and changes after the end Cretaceous extinction. There's there's a more it's more of a common kind of consciousness that like oh there were lots of different kinds of mammals and, you know and, you know that came and went. But for some reason there's this idea that like all dinosaurs were this like monolith of yeah. like constant diversity and everything lived at the same time. And that might maybe it could be uh, attributed to the fact that if you know your kid is into into paleontology and you go and you get like a box of dinosaur toys like it's just it's just a big you know it's a big bucket of dinosaurs and it's everything <laughs> from the like triassic jurassic and cretaceous is all smashed in the yeah air. um and it doesn't help as well that 
you know, you kind of get a, a smash up in some of the most popular franchises like, you know, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, uh, that that kind of uh, combined franchise, you know, they use the word Jurassic because it sounds cooler than Cretaceous, <laughs> but actually most of the animals in it are Cretaceous. So ah. it's, a, it, you know, it, it's just, yeah, the timeline gets really mucked. And, and, and actually at those kinds of, of timescales, I think a lot of people just struggle with the, the sheer scope of it. So like the classic one, what you're referring to is, you know, uh, T-Rex, arguably the most famous mm-hmm. dinosaur of all time. Well, uh, I think more than arguably, almost certainly so. Uh, it was right near the end. So mm-hmm. it was right around, you know, 66 million years, uh, million years ago. So you're talking something, I mean, just doing the general, I'm probably making too broad of a, a guess here, but roughly a million years of existence for T-Rex potentially. Yeah. About like that. So right around like 67 to 66, that's right at the end, the last million years or even a little less. That's when you have Rex. Do you think, is that a, a common run or are there some that would be like, Oh, they, they were around for a hundred million years or something. Well, for, for big land living vertebrates, mm-hmm. a pretty good run is about a mil to a mil and a half. Okay. Uh, Two mil is like a long run, but if you're a if you're a snail, for example, or some other mollusks, then that's nothing. Some of those <laughs> species, you know, they're they're at least what we identify as a species, a certain kind of you know an anatomical type in the fossil record, best we can, you know, which is usually in that case a shell. It might go for ten million years, twenty million years, mm-hmm. and it's for you know identical in all the traits we can measure. So. It varies a lot between different groups, mm-hmm. but for big, even marine, but particularly terrestrial vertebrates, you know, the, the things that big mammals do now, yeah, a million and a half is a pretty good run. So Rex was probably cut a little short because mm-hmm. it, there were T-Rex individuals around, populations around when a big rock fell out of the sky and made <laughs> life suck. So they, you know, presumably that species would last at least a little bit longer, but it wasn't a bad run per se as it was but yeah it's it's further in time from stegosaurus mm-hmm. than it is from us yeah, uh, yeah because stegosaurus is from like right in the middle of the mesozoic and rex is from basically uh right at the end the other kind of cool gee whiz like time fact that i like to throw in there is i ask people how long they think mammals have been around versus how long dinosaurs uh-huh. have been around and the answer is interestingly enough almost exactly the same Really? Yeah, so the earliest mammals are about the same age as the earliest dinosaurs. No way. And, of course, on the flip side, which a lot of people don't know, I know you that, that you're aware, both mammals and di- dinosaurs are still living because birds are the only living dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So technically speaking, the clock is still running on both of them, and they started at about the same, so they are actually running in exactly the same race, <laughs> pretty much. The dinosaur diversity, of course, peaked on the early end of that, and uh-huh. it took a major hit, and not only one group is uh, remains do you, mammals did the reverse do you what do you include in that group um certain types of shark sharks aquatic life um sea alligators anything sneak in there that's been around uh so well yes yeah, so if you so you could compare to other groups that would uh so they i did not include any of those in in that comparison i'm just talking about dinosaurs and mammals proper not the kind of popular consciousness usage but like the proper usage but there are other groups of 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 urban animals that have been around a long time so if you took sharks as a whole for example then they're doing even they do even better because they mm-hmm. go back well before the first dinosaurs and we sell sharks now but m- the modern group of sharks or modern groups of sharks um, are a relatively small subset 
of all the shark diversity that's ever existed. And so mm-hmm. modern grade sharks show up basically in the Mesozoic. So a question I going back to first, I want to, well, I don't want to keep doing first. I want to, I do want to stay on this train, but I have, uh, you're wearing a dinosaur shirt, which I love. I think it's fantastic. Um, Gotta be in uniform. You know? <laughs> I appreciate it. I feel like in the last 10 years has become kind of common knowledge or like that. that's what everyone would say. Yeah, yeah. They Dinosaurs uh, evolved into birds or birds came from dinosaurs. Whereas I feel like growing up as a kid, I don't remember that being taught in school. Like, and And look at this. Look at their carriage. Look at how they operate very similar to something you might know, and then show us a chicken or something like that. But I think with the mass extinction, the die-off, if there were clouds or say the volcanoes erupted from the impact and this crater and ash in the sky and blah, you know, a lack of sunlight, whatever it would be that would be catastrophic to their existence, how did, how did the birds survive that? We don't know, um, although it's worth noting that most birds went extinct too. Okay. So there's a tendency to think, you know, and I understand why this is. This is, you know, I think largely the fault of paleontologists like myself in terms of how we explain these things. We we often talk about it as if, well, this group made it through and this group didn't. So it seems like it's like a one or a zero. Either you were fine or you were toast. Uh Uh, And actually very little was fine at the Cretaceous extinction. Uh, Most groups lost a lot of their diversity. But if you don't lose all of it, Mm -hmm. you make it through and you can re-diversify Afterwards, and, mm-hmm. you know, following the post-apocalyptic sort of conditions uh, <laughs> that would probably lasted for thousands of years. So the the thing to remember is that most birds went extinct then too. In fact, there was a wide diversity of birds in, in throughout much of the Mesozoic, mm-hmm. and that in, at the time in question, at the end of the Cretaceous, there were a lot of even relatively small kind of songbird-ish looking things that were not closely related to living songbirds. Uh, there are there were a number of different groups of Mesozoic birds, but just kind of simplifying. What would what would differentiate them? Where if you saw one right now out on the tree, like what is that? Just different necks, different build, t- teeth. What's going on there? So teeth is one of them. So actually, if, if one was out on the tree right now, uh-huh. you from the distance we are, you actually wouldn't think it was weird. Probably we don't okay. know what they sounded like. Maybe it would sound weird. <laughs> Potentially. Hey, 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 <laughs> yeah, hey, just, you know. I'll get you, get it. You know, what? Um, uh, that's not chirping, but more than likely, it would sound more or less enough like a living modern bird that you wouldn't notice. Okay, and if you and you'd be like, oh, let me look at my field guide. Oh, I don't seem to find this thing. But if you caught it, mm-hmm. you would notice it had claws on its wings and teeth in its mouth, ah. among other things. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and then if you were really cruel and killed it and dissected it, uh, you'd find that its skeleton had a lot of weird features uh, in terms of the way that the bones grow and fuse and things. Hmm. And there's one part of the skeleton in particular that fused together in the opposite way of how living birds do it. And so the nickname for that group is, uh, became opposite birds, and it became their <laughs> formal name. They just, of course, made it fancy by is doing a-, a Latinized version. Okay, good. Yeah, Ananti yeah, or Nithing. Is the name of them. And an, 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 an anatomer is an opposite, is a mere image. Okay. So it's just the opposite birds. And the ones we have are called neonithings, the new birds. Cool. Does the opposite term come, you're t- mostly just the bones. Mm-hmm. Like, well, this is the opposite of how, what we're used to. Right. right cool. Right. I don't know why, whether it's the way we're educated or maybe cartoons factor into it. Everything kind of has a design to it. And, and that gets too close to like intelligent design. But I mean, like, 
it seems like, okay, there's these post-apocalyptic conditions and it, food is probably very difficult to come by. Yeah. And then it comes down to reproduction where I guess it would potentially stilt your offspring. Like, oh, this one made it, but it's tiny. It's way smaller than normal. And then that's attractive in selective breeding. So sort of natural selection has a, and it just, how does it keep going smaller? That's what it's always, it's just to me from cartoons and things, it seems like gang. There's way less food. My thinking is, why do we want to keep feeding these multi-ton vessels? Let's get small. Let's get way down there, Steve Martin style. And and I know that's ridiculous, but the other side of it, the more like natural occurrence, is also weird. Yeah. So I study a uh, my my personal research. I actually study a lot of uh, uh, size evolution sorts of. Uh, problems. I particularly look at the big size range, how these things get huge, and how does that work. And and uh, one of the the interesting take home messages that I've increasingly found support for over the years is that actually the the performance, uh, sort of mechanical performance of big animals is often a lot bigger than or a lot better than people think. Uh, uh-huh. That big animals actually perform pretty well. You know, there's this really? kind of there's this kind of thing that like oh if they're really big they'll be slow. Yeah, I've been chased by an elephant. You know, and it's like oh and you know I work a lot on, on flying animals and pterosaurs. Yeah. You know, these giant pterosaurs and I've I've lost track of them. People have come to me and be like, well at that size though they must have really sucked at flying. It's like no, actually they probably flew like a rocket. Like they yeah they, they do well. But you do need a lot of resources. So the, the constraint there is pretty obvious. If, 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 as long as things are going great, being big is, is awesome. And when, and when the, the conditions are, are rough, it's probably very difficult. Um, when I go to but, museums, a lot of times I'll look at, especially the, the herbivores, and just be like, this giant, the ribs are enormous. <laughs> and this long neck that really, as a cantilever, can't support a huge head. And, and therefore, the jaw is big enough to consume huge bites of food. So you, it would just seem like when you look at the tiny little head comparatively, like our head to stomach ratio, maybe that's where we, I get it from, thinking like, yeah, that makes sense, as right. opposed to like, okay, well, I'm going to eat with my hand right here, and I'm going to fill up a cement truck with it. Right. It's <laughs> like nibbling all yeah. day. Well, I call it, yeah, well, that's what you're doing. And I, I call it swallow first, chew later. Mm-hmm. So the, the difference is all you all the head does is snip off things and swallow. That's mm-hmm. all it does. There's no chewing. There's no processing up there. It's just okay. whole branches, chunks of leaves. It doesn't <laughs> care. It just it all goes down. Uh-huh. You know, if 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 you if you were a buggy and you really got swallowed, that would be a really bad day because you got a long ride down, like an <laughs> eight meter long neck. You're like, oh, this sucks. Uh, I know I'm gonna die at the bottom. Here I go. And uh, and he just you know it's it's that would be that'd be a rough way to go. But yeah, they're just they're throwing down this long neck and then they and then they they chuck it into a, a big gut and. Basically, everything's done by either like grinding with sort of a gizzard-like organ, likely, uh, or chemical uh, di- digestion, essentially, and biological digestion in a large gut, or some of both. And it's probably all of the above. And the thing about getting big there, another advantage of getting getting big, is if you eat really poor quality stuff, yeah. the stuff that you and I would would literally starve to death trying to eat. Like if we ate nothing but leaves, yeah. we would get plenty of iron and we'd get almost no calories and we would starve to death and die. The- would we have bowel movements? Uh, we would, and okay. and it, it, they would be full of stuff that we couldn't digest. Like okay. it would be probably very abnormal and painful and bad, and we might get an impaction, and who knows what would happen. Yeah, but it would be you know it's not good for us. The, but these animals are so large, they could do what some animals do today, which is they can eat the leaves and they can basically ferment them cool. into the, in, until the point where they're actually starting to extract energy from the cellulose, which is of course a lot of the mass of the plant material. Here's a question then that I think would get me laughed out of any sort of 
conference, paleontology or historical or otherwise. But people bring up farm animals and uh, release of methane, CO2. I mean, these dinosaur farts had to have been substantial. Oh, they'd be very, they'd be really substantial. I remember uh, there was a, uh, I remember at least in one sort of public talk a, uh, or a panel, a colleague of mine, a, a, a very notable paleontologist actually was asked, um, uh, what do you think the Mesozoic would be like? And he, I think he responded with smelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, is you know, it probably would be particularly yeah. if you were near the tail end of a, of a big of a big sauropod or something. Months old fermented leaves just stewing in there. And, oh, God. Yeah, it would be, it, yeah, that would be, it would be rough. That would be brutal. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it isn't necessarily, um, uh, isn't necessarily a, 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 a fine smelling, elegant option, but it does work. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that's the advantage of getting, that's another advantage of getting very large. But course, has that been introduced in any way whatsoever as a potential rather than the meteor that they just ruin the atmosphere, much like we've done with aerosols and in, in industrial sort of production? Not as far as I'm aware, but I think that would be a very entertaining publication. <laughs> so like just the, the dinosaur fart mechanism of the end Cretaceous extinction. Right. That would be, that'd be a lot of then fun. Then looking up, like, guys, this ozone is not going to be right. Cool it. <laughs> yeah, stop. What the, uh, God, I'm burning already. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, it's that you know it, it would it's a uh, it's it's not the most savory way of of digesting your food, but it's very efficient, and you can get a lot of energy out of otherwise low quality stuff that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be big to do it. It's very difficult for small animals. So it was just, that. I mean, would you? And I don't know why I'm so fascinated by this, but I we think of like lizards now, or even birds. They had a lot of time to kind of hang out. When I think of the small heads and the giant stomach or area to fill up, I think of like all day every day like there's a new tree all right let's take it down and just going and chewing all those branches and leaves and being kind of exhausted oh yeah i mean i've, I've you know i've commented on a number of occasions that for a big sauropod dinosaur these big long neck things you know once it's reached like sort of at least skeletal mature maturity uh we don't know exactly when they could breed but you know when these big suckers when you know like 20 tons or something or and some of them got more than that 60 mm-hmm. 70 80 tons and when you're that size you only care about two things, food and sex. <laughs> That's the only things that matter. Uh-huh. You don't have to worry about predators. What predators? Yeah. You're a house on <laughs> legs walking around. What about your balance? Probably a pain if you fall over or something. Well, sure, but these are these are actually very stable animals. I mean, yeah. the whole skeleton and yeah. and uh, to the best we can reconstruct it, musculature is uh, you know, none of it's speed adapted, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's all stability and efficiency adapted. So these things are not going to, you tipping one over would be essentially yeah. impossible. And, uh, yeah, they care about, they care about nothing. I mean, yeah, I still see, I mean, this is one of those things that drives me nuts. You know, we're talking about the pterosaur with the humans on the, you know, and of course that doesn't work, uh, time-wise on the, the packaging for our beers, which I'm doing very much, by the way. This um, is good. You say you like hoppy and this is, um, billed as an American, like English IPA, which they do hazy, the yes. hazy IPA. I, I only a couple of weeks ago was at a place where like, do you, do you like hazy IPAs? And I, I have no idea what that is. I do. I do. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm not enough of a connoisseur to give you all the details on exactly the differences and such. Although I think it's named for the, the appearance. Yeah. Yeah. If you look but, at it, it is, hey, but there's a taste to it, like a little bit more bitter. But there is a little, it's got a little, it's a little more bitter and I, yes, I enjoy it very much. Cool. So this is, this is a great pick. I appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. I'm enjoying it as well. Um, but yeah, one of the things I see in museum exhibits all the time is is like, you know, there'll be some display of like a tyrannosaur, you know, marching, you know, aggressively towards 
uh, be on a mural or a mount or what have you, uh, towards you know a, a thirty ton sauropod, and it's like <laughs> and 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 you know guests come and they look at this and they go, oh wow, look it's hunt, you know imagine hunting the sauropod. I look at it, I'm like, oh look at the suicidal tyrannosaur. <laughs> I mean that'd be like that'd be like a four year old trying to take me out. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's not, I mean, it's... What if it was, I mean, the tail, though? The only thing it could maybe get a bite of would be the end of the tail, and that would be a death sentence, right? Right, because it would grab the tail, it would hurt, it would ju- it would twitch the tail, and then the tyrannosaur would be missing a head, <laughs> which is necessary for life. Yeah. Uh, and it would be, it, yeah, it would be very deceased. I, I, did, I did some numbers at one point, just back at the envelope, nothing super exact, but on, like, what would happen, because I'm... The team that I, I, I lead in New Mexico uh, most seasons uh, uh, is excavating two really big sauropods, two big titanosaurs. Oh, cool! And one of them is an articulated neck. And so someone asked me, like, what would happen if this if if this thing was harassed by a by a tyrannosaur because it's a late Cretaceous animal, so there were tyrannosaurs. And uh, I did some quick numbers on what would happen if the neck like hit the tyrannosaur, like basically if it came up on the front end and the thing just kind of swung its neck and just clobbered. So you're giving it a minimal velocity. Yeah. Just like the minimal, just to kind of, just kind of sweeps over like almost just to look at what's happening and just (laughs) clips it. Yeah. And basically there's no head left on the tyrannosaur. (laughs) It just, it just explodes. It's just, it blows up. Like it would be the equivalent of a bus going maybe five miles an hour and hitting you or something. Yeah. Well the, the, a little bit like that, the, the analogy I used was imagine that if I hit you in the head with a hammer that weighs as much as you do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the the neck on this animal weigh, would weigh about as much as the whole tyrannosaur. Yeah. So it's like I walk up to you with a sledgehammer, and the head on the hammer weighs as much as your entire body, and I hit you in the jaw with it. <laughs> 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 like you're gonna be, we're gonna be picking pieces of you off from the walls and the ceiling. <laughs> like, it, like there would be tyrannosaur raining from the sky. Like, so if you could, and it's it's entertainment, a museum to. It, to a certain degree, I mean, because you try to get kids in there, and you look at the teeth, and yeah. ooh, look what it's stalking. And that's cool if you have like a saber tooth and it's moving towards something, even if it's huge, even if it's a mammoth. Yeah. You're like, eh, I could maybe buy that. But for you, you would not like that to be heightened or or even remotely hinted at that, that yeah yeah this dinosaur would have ever pursued that one yeah i would prefer that they not do that i mean and, and part of that too is i understand that you want dynamic displays that are exciting to entertain mm-hmm. but there are plenty of other options that i think would be equally entertaining to the people yeah. that are not stretching <laughs> the plausibility like that for example you know young predators young adult predators in their first you know on their own at least in the modern world sometimes make mistakes and they do attack things that they that they wouldn't be ah, able to yeah. they handle so sure show your young tyrannosaur stalking the the big sauropod and then the next you know the, the final mural or whatever it's it's crushed beneath you know <laughs> or or you know or a or a ceratopsian mount, like you know, big horn dinosaur, like standing triumphantly over the young adult T. Rex that it's just skewered because the thing was stupid <laughs> enough to attack an elephant-sized animal with swords on its face, right? I'm just thinking of digs where they're like, "Oh, this is pretty broken up. I mean, we got a few rem- remnants here, but you know, some vertebrae, some rib pieces." Well, we don't have enough here for a, a, a structure or even a specimen. But if you have your display and you just put it like against a wall, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, Whoa, that one got destroyed. Look at that. Well, yeah, and just the the the, the signage can just say aftermath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should start using that. I would be like, this one hundred percent. There's nothing plaster here. This is all real bones. This is all real bone. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's just and this is yep. This is uh, this I is heard, physics at its best, kids. Yeah, I heard that there was. Um, 
for a while this museum brewing controversy. I think it was just the bipedal, more of the... And I like how you say Tyrannosaur, not Tyrannosaurus. Mm-hmm. So the us kind of dis- disappears in the professional world? Uh, it, it, it means you're being less specific. So, oh, gotcha. So uh, we use a sort of a... We still use a taxonomic kind of hierarchy of terms-ish, at least to describe things, even though it's not a perfect fit. Um... Uh, most scientists, myself included, these days prefer something called phylogeny, which is more about like have your evolutionary tree. But from a naming standpoint, we still have different group names. And Tyrannosaurus is what we call a genus. Okay. Uh, and it has actually one species in it, which is Rex. Tyrannosaurus ah. Rex. A Tyrannosaur is the broader group of animals related to Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, but not limited to that species. So that would include Alber- Albertosaurus, which was really originally discovered in Alberta, Canada. Uh, that's a Tyrannosaur. Despletosaurus is a Tyrannosaur. Um, uh, Gorgosaurus is a Tyrannosaur. Like, on and on. And, and these on. are, if you saw them, would my natural reaction be like, whoa, Tyrannosaurus? And they go, no, 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 that's a. Albertosaurus, because see, it's got the little and whatever it has, little horns or something that are different, or is it v- dramatically different? It's not dramatically different, um, but it's more different than just like one little bump or something. Okay. Uh, uh, you would probably look at it and be like, "Hmm, I thought ty- I thought T ty- Rex was a little was was shaped a little differently than that. That doesn't look quite right." So mm-hmm. you'd probably be you'd be able to tell, and it, and, and if you saw them side by side, you'd, you'd be able to tell the difference. Yeah. So there's it's a reasonably diverse group. But the reason I kept saying Tyrannosaur is because you know, in our, uh, can't the specific timing of our site, and I was, I was re- sort of referencing our, our, our big titanosaurs, they were, they're from the late Cretaceous, but a little too early for Tyrannosaurus rex proper. Gotcha. There were Tyrannosaurs in their environment, mm-hmm. but not Tyrannosaurus rex. And if I start rattling off other Tyrannosaur names that people <laughs> haven't heard of, they're going to be like, what the hell is he talking about? So, uh, eh, it's yeah. impressive. I'm, and at some point I do want you to go through, the periods mesozoic and uh cretaceous and jurassic etc and people could easily look this up but i think it's fascinating to like this one lasted this this is the very beginning this is like earth getting going as far as we know you know 13 billion years and change and then a lot of just kind of nothing and then hey these things are crawling and maybe they were the first maybe they were not but we found them and but anyway getting back to my museum Mm. thing i heard there were two preeminent archaeologists, paleontologists that were, when you were a museum and you were going to display something and they would say, okay, yeah, this is how they, this is how most of them stood. Their tail was uh, a tripod element. And then someone else said, no, no, no. They, they, they would stand on two legs and their head and their tail would kind of counterbalance them. That's how they moved. So then there was a period where depending on which museum you went into, you would see the representation like, oh, this is so-and-so's input here. Is, is there any truth to that? Yeah, that, there was truth to that. And, and those sorts of things have happened in other cases, maybe less visually dramatic sense, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the tripod model lost, incidentally. <laughs> That's uh, what I, yeah. I see. Uh, I never we, see them now, and I always am kind of still expecting some holdovers. Like, no, no, the tail was vital. Yeah. So the, uh, there's, and there's various reasons why we were very confident they did not stand that way. One is we have lots of trackways, and they don't have tail marks. Oh. So the tail's yeah. not dragging. Second of all, it turns out in order to get the tail in that position, you would break it. Okay, so and, what would that be? Yeah. That be like if you're because dogs and things when they sit down, their tail is right there at the base, but they never sit where like. But they don't take weight on the tail. Yeah, exactly. These animals yeah. could, you know, they could lay down. The tail might touch the ground if they're laying down or something, mm-hmm. but they're not going to support their their weight on it. Yeah. Um, that's not to say the tails weren't weren't important. They were important counterbalance elements, and some animals they had weaponry on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also, and this is true for most reptiles, actually they anchored the some of the most important um, running muscles 
Ah. So the, the, the primary muscle in most reptiles that extends the hip, so it pulls your leg back, mm-hmm. goes from the base of the tail up to sometimes about mid-tail, actually, to the back of their thigh Whoa. and pulls that, that leg back. So if you pull the hamstring, it could extend into your tail? Essentially, yeah, it's a different muscle now, but it's a, yeah, but it's like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're cool. using they're using this thing like we like we use our hamstrings to an mm-hmm. extent, and um, and anyway, the now the the obvious exception to that, which is kind of interesting, is birds, which of course are technically a derived reptile and a living dinosaur, mm-hmm. uh, and they of course have reduced bony tails. They have big tail uh, you know tail fans sometimes with lots of feathers, but not a lot of bone in there. Mm-hmm. They don't have this big this big muscle but birds also run in a really funny way yeah they basically run from their knee rather than from their hip so the the thigh bones kept kind of horizontal and doesn't move that much yeah and it's just kind of an anchor point and then most of the motion happens at at the knee so they're using they're using a lot of true hamstrings and quadriceps actually as opposed to these these big hip do you think the opposite birds would have utilized more like quadriceps and that part of the leg? We think so, because a lot of them had reduced tails, too. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to reduce the tail, that's probably what you would do. But that's our be- that's just our best guess. When you say reduced tail and you're looking at a little bird like that, mm-hmm. are there you know one or two little vertebrae that stick out? Or mm-hmm. is it... So it is a little... It could have been a little tail in the traditional sense that we think of it and not like the fanned feathers. Or it's pretty well, confident. It was both. If you look inside a modern bird, they have a few vertebrae there, too. There's, oh, there's yeah. still there's still yeah, some yeah. bones in the tail, right. um, and then the, the last little parts is is fused up as a little nub. We call it a pica style, mm-hmm. um, fun little jargon term there. But it's just a little fused up nub at the end, and then there's some muscles in there, and then the the, the feathers are embedded in the ligaments and, and muscles, and they can fan them out or, or you know yeah. close them up or etc. So the, the, the tail's mostly feather now, but there's still some muscle and bone back there. But there's not enough room to anchor these big hip extensors mm-hmm. so instead they basically walk around like they're in a crouch all the time so if you were going to put yourself in a bird position you <laughs> yeah. would you would get up on your toes and your tippy toes because they're they're running with their ankle mm-hmm. really elevated they have a really long foot and their ankles really up and then you would crouch down so that your thigh was horizontal yeah and you'd lean over yeah it's a really uncomfortable position but that's <laughs> that's the resting position for birds i thought they were just walking around all the time I sometimes, I mean, this is a really difficult thing to do physically for us and more of a quadruped thing, less bird-like, but our, you know, when you look at any animal, especially, you know, when it's like hanging, it looks relatively human and you're like, oh, it's just because our, uh, you know, God, now I'm forgetting the... I keep wanting to call it a cannon bone, but that's like a horse thing. That's a horse thing, but yeah, we call it a humerus in the upper humerus, arm here. Yeah, yeah. Is, is longer. So, <laughs> uh, but the the proportions are still kind of there. If you were to like clamp your elbows to your side and then bring your knees all the way up almost to your chest right. and try to get on the balls of your feet and just the tips of your fingers, you'd look relatively similar to some really uncomfortable animal. Yes. That's kind of how they stand on fours. And you're saying a bird is just kind of that, but elevated or right. vertical. So, yeah, so the hands are not touching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that seems really uncomfortable. When you watch something like Jurassic Park and the like the raptors are running, the way they move the tail when they're running, does that please you? You're like, yes, they listened to us. This is how it kind of would have been. Uh, more or less. They added a little bit uh, a little bit more flexibility to the tails in, in them for the films because they liked kind of the whipping around action than they probably actually had. In reality, they were they were reasonably stiffened uh, in, that, in that particular both, animal. Both those muscles would be put. Is there two mu- one muscle for each leg? Going yeah, on the tail? yeah. So there's a le- yeah, there's a left and a right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the overall running the overall running mechanics of the you know the raptors in Jurassic Park or the Tyrannosaurus and, and the mm-hmm. Ty- and the, which is Tyrannosaurus in that case um, they're they're 
it's pretty good. I mean, yeah. those, those are the, the, I've I've got plenty of gripes with uh, as a scientist with the sort of you know I mean they're movies right the, the science <laughs> fiction emphasis on fiction yeah. just for fun I don't take it too seriously but you know if pushed I have plenty of gripes with the the accuracy and plausibility of a lot of things they do with the animals but the locomotion especially the running uh, and the swimming for example in in, in like the the mosasaur in the, the last couple of films uh, I, I've always thought it was really good. So mm-hmm. you know, they, you know they, these are top top notch animators yeah. and top notch, you know, rigging artists and 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 uh, and concept artists, and you know, they are doing a very very good job with the task at hand. The task at hand turns out to be create a monster that's inspired by a dinosaur more than create an actual dinosaur. Yeah. But but to that end, they make the move in a in a really realistic plausible way and I, I think they are actually taking in fact I know they are taking some real inspiration from and sometimes directly translating actual muscle actions and motions from real animals birds or otherwise mm-hmm. uh, for, for those things I mean I would assume I mean very. I think you talked about this at the screening that input from people like yourself that would say well our you know, all you can really offer is like based on our fossil findings and or our studies in mechanics and motion it would more likely be this. It'd be a little more circular or a little more um, cumbersome or, or whatever that might be. And then they could enter that in like, you know, oh, so like this, more of a thud when they land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then does that, going back to the museum thing, does that become difficult when there's, le- you know, I assume that the front becomes more united as time goes by where everyone can kind of say collectively, okay, the tail didn't hit the ground. But in those periods where it's still being worked out, then it's tough to make Jurassic Park when half or some faction is going, no, 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 the tail should be on the ground. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it. There, there are, what happens is at any given point in time, some of the things are, are, are well known. Uh, the the, uh, the you know, different hypotheses have fallen by the wayside and some have been validated multiple times at that point And like I said, it's sort of a united front. And then other and at, and at the same time, there'll be some other topics that are relatively new, things that are newly, uh, there are new areas of investigation, new hypotheses that haven't hit that point yet, and there's lots of controversy, and then say, oh, which one you put in, and the one they're going to put in is whichever one they think looks cooler in that case. <laughs> and you can't give them any fault for that, because mm-hmm. it's just as likely as anything else. Um, so, for example, uh, you can't give them any trouble for, in the original 1993 Jurassic Park, not putting feathers on the on the velociraptors. Mm-hmm. There was actually already the idea that they might have been feathered. That idea had been floated, but there wasn't particularly strong published data yet to really, uh, to really cinch that. It was just kind of an idea. It was it, they could have been scaly, could have been feathered. There was yeah. reasons to think it could go either way. And then, actually, starting really just a few years later, the evidence really started rolling in hard, showing that that whole group of dinosaurs was heavily feathered. And so now there really should be feathers on them. We know that. That's not a question anymore. Uh-huh. Of course, what's happened is the, the the look of the original Jurassic Park raptors has become kind of canonical in a way. Yeah. And so they, they kept it. But to, to your point, you could make an argument that they should have changed it you know, along the way or what have you, or it would have been nice or it would have been fun or whatever if they added the feathers to them in Jurassic World. But that same argument isn't nearly as strong for the original Jurassic Park because the knowledge base wasn't the same. <laughs> I have so many things within that that would be... One, I was thinking about a raptor. You know that bird that like can hook you? You always see these things of people running and jumping over a fence as this bird comes by and it has like that hook on the back of its foot and it's... I think it's in Australia or something. I can't remember the name of the bird, but it strikes up at you 
and can just impale or you know gut people. I think that's oh, what like it's oh, cassowaries. Maybe that maybe sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would have to have the, this like blade-like modified inner toe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Even when I see that, I think I saw the Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, initially messing with them, and he had to dive out. Like, whoa, that was close. Look at this, and they show a replay, and the bird was like going for him. And I thought, whoa, that's. But there's still something not scary about it. But if you looked over and saw a bird that looked like an ostrich or something with just the most insanely predatory kind of mouthful of teeth. I'm really glad that we don't have anything like that. We have scary things now, but just the thought of that existing on the same planet as us is so terrifying. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I I mean, I love birds. I do a lot of research on the origin of birds and origin of flight and things like that and uh, such. And I I grew up with, uh, you know, with with a uh, mom who really instilled with me interest in a lot of things, but particularly birds because she's an avid bird watcher. But I also was a zookeeper for years. Really? And I worked in both the herpetology department, which would be reptiles and amphibians, mm-hmm. and ornithology department, so birds. And I loved working with all those animals. They're all fascinating, beautiful creatures uh, that all have my utmost respect. That said, it is almost the opposite in terms of kind of what you have to deal with from a behavior standpoint to what I think a lot of people expect. When I talk to, to folks that have, n- have not worked in that kind of professional context, they, ex- they expect, fully expect that the snakes would have been the most aggressive things they were. They're the least aggressive. Hmm. by far they just want to be left alone they're all stealth yeah. they don't like to even be seen they don't like to be noticed they just want to hang out mm-hmm. you really have to push them the aggressive animals were birds mm-hmm. birds are just remarkably aggressive animals <laughs> like they're again beautiful fascinating smart animals being aggressive does not make that does not make them bad animals or anything of that nature i want to make that very very clear i think they are wonderful but they are much more proactive if you will in their in their defense of themselves and their nests yeah then then most non-bird reptiles like you know your your, your typical lizard or snake would be like i'm just gonna hunker down and hope <laughs> they don't see me a yeah. bird will be like i think they're gonna see me so i'm gonna get the element of surprise and dive bomb them you know and then you know, <laughs> or in the case of some of these big rat eyes i'm gonna run up there and gut them with my feet because mm-hmm. then i know for sure the problem's taken care of <laughs> and i mean keepers would get run you know, we had you had these shields up basically that we could get behind. You know the emus, the big Australian redites would sometimes charge you, and you'd have to just get behind the shield. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's all you could do because the thing is is a gigantic, fast running, yeah. you know, gut kicking <laughs> monster basically, and it's with a pecking like hammer, you pick your hammer face, yeah, yeah, and it and it's you know it, it's a, a wonderful animal. I love those animals. But I had to be really, really, really careful around mm-hmm. them. Much more careful than I had to be around, you know, a python, which is no big deal. <laughs> it's too hardwired, and I think for me because of like terrible lizard that, and I don't think you know the evolution of uh, dinosaurs continued on into our classic reptiles now. But I, when we think of humans now, people will go, "Oh, well, that's the reptilian brain." Then the mammalian brain. You've got a frontal lobe and this. Homo sapien kind of aspect that's a little more thoughtful and et cetera, et cetera. You know, do you think that, uh, well, I guess what I'm getting at with, with dinosaurs more so is that the reptiles didn't even factor in at all, at least for the bipedal ones, like, like raptors, purely avian related. Well, they're, yeah, they're much closer to a bird than they are to, to other living reptile groups. The, 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 the issue here is that the thing, the, the term we use of reptile in the colloquial sense is a really kind of hodgepodge, strange word that has a sort of cultural meaning, but not a lot of scientific meaning. Oh, really? So reptiles is a real, I mean, they're a real group, but, but reptiles, for example, would include birds. What? 
And yeah. Oh uh, man, you're blowing my mind. Because all dinosaurs are bird, uh, all dinosaurs excuse me, are reptiles, and that includes birds. Furthermore, birds and crocodilians are more closely related to one another than either of them are to say lizards or snakes. Really? So broadly speaking, there are two major groups of reptiles uh, that have done very well from the, you know through the Mesozoic into today. We have our lapidosaurs, which are our lizards, which include snakes mm-hmm. and some other things too. But in the modern day, it's mostly those. And then you have what's called the archosaurs, the ruling reptiles, which includes pterosaurs, or included pterosaurs that are extinct now, and dinosaurs, of which only birds remain, and, okay. cro- and crocodilians. Okay. So, you're, so you've got this crocodilian, dinosaur, pterosaur group, and then you have this, this you know, lizard, snake, and relatives group, and they share a common ancestor hundreds of millions of years ago. And as in not very recently. <laughs> so they're not that closely related. And there's a tendency, I think, for us to think that like, oh, um, being cold-blooded as ectothermic mm-hmm. is more is a more similar traitor. That means you must be very, very closely related relative to other things. But actually, that's not the case. Crocodilians are ectothermic. Uh, lizards are ectothermic. But they're not closely related. It just turns out that it's a good way to make you a living because it's efficient. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things do it. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's also advantages to being warm-blooded, so a lot of things do that too. So that switches around all over, all over the place. One thing we do notice that's kind of cool is that on average, the archosaurs seem to have more, typically, there are exceptions on both sides, but they typically are more social. These are your display, social, parental care reptiles, right? Crocodilians care for their babies and their eggs. Well, so when you're, Birds I mean, do the same. Dinosaurs are the same. We're we're looking at that um, from things that are living and Mm -hmm. we're aware of now. But when you're going back through the fossil record and finding something that aligns more with the crocodilian side, are you able to tell that? Are you able to, you know? Sometimes, yeah. So we have good good evidence for parental care in a lot of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. We also have good evidence that a lot of them didn't have parental care, although they still laid eggs that were more Mm -hmm. bird-like. But there was, you know... Parental care and sexual selection and, and display and these sorts of things were really strong factors in uh, in in dinosaurs and I in think some I of the relatives. Can, I think I could guess where it came from the associations and the similarities. People like me just seeing it and being like, "That skin's kind of like that skin." Right. Oh, this one needs to be out in the sun. Yeah, they're buddies. They're pretty much the same. <laughs> they're pretty much the same thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, but but not that uh, um, that that closely related. Mm-hmm. Um, there are. There are other things that other m- details that someone like myself who's a specialist make you know, are, are a big deal, but wouldn't necessarily be obvious to someone who doesn't spend far too much time doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, and to have to do the skull and things like that. So your those lopedosaur kinds of things, your lizard snake group, um, ha- tend to have extremely mobile skulls. Mobile some, skulls? Yeah, all kinds of joints in the skull and different parts of their their head's all super flexible. Wow. Um, there are some exceptions. Some of them have tighter ones, but they tend to be super flexible. And the archosaur side tends not to be as much, although birds have have a couple extra joints we don't have, so they have relatively flexible skulls. Like their upper jaw can move relative to the lower one. And then we're stuck with this just ridiculously pedestrian thing that has barely any joints. Right, right. So mammals have gone the complete, you know, complete extreme other direction. We just have the the one pair of, of jaw joints and nothing else. Yeah. Um, uh, a snake, for example, has well, depending on how you, exactly how you define a joint, has it probably at least twelve. That's and so we've got cool. The two. Um, do you find yourself studying them and picturing like how would my skull feel if I could do this? You know, how could I if I could turn just my forehead to look at something a little bit? That's, yeah. Well, it yeah it, it's 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 kind of weird to imagine, um, and and it, it's kind of like 
imagine the bones of your face and jaws were kind of just hanging off of your brain case. <laughs> like to sort of suspend it off of it and they call it move around. And you don't have any facial muscles mm-hmm. because only mammals have those. Reptiles don't have those. They're the, the same muscles in them are on their throat. So you see all these really super mobile throat motions and the dewlaps <laughs> and everything come out and lizards. So all those muscles down there. So, so you express yourself by manipulating your throat <laughs> and you eat your food by moving your face, like your actual bones of your face <laughs> and you can move them independently on the left and right sides. The, but uh, what's controlling if there's no muscle? Well, there is muscle. Oh, there is. There's, okay. there, there's muscles in their head, but they're all jaw muscles. They're not what we call facial expression muscles. Yeah, so yeah. not these muscles, these flat muscles that float in the in the front of your your head in the in the skin, basically to, to help you smile, things like that. Like they can't if, smile or frown, but they can but they can move their jaw on the right side differently from the one on the right in like multiple places. It's I bizarre. can't stop thinking about that existing in humans. And if you sat down to dinner, like on a blind date, especially mm-hmm. or just at a business meeting with someone you hadn't met. You ask them how it's going. You made a, qu- a quip. Nothing. They're just, oh, you go, oh, this person doesn't have the greatest social interactive skills. And then dinner shows up and their whole face starts moving. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, you're enjoying your lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's creepy. Yeah. I mean, to give you an idea of how much mobility there is, you got, so take a snake, for example. It grabs something. It has no hands to help push the food down uh-huh. its throat, right? right. And, it's, and it's grabbed something as big around as it is. So what does it do? Well, the left and right sides of its lower jaw are not, are not fused at the chin. So uh-huh. their chin comes apart. They've Fun. got a ligament there, but they stretch the chin apart. So right now, imagine <laughs> your dinner guests, their left and right sides of their jaw are just like kind of hanging. <laughs> and weird. Then they have not one, but two joints on both sides for the for the lower jaw. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like the lower jaw is your forearm. Yeah. Imagine the teeth are like your fingers. Yeah, yeah. And the first joint is like your elbow and the other joint's like your shoulder. So, you're just so it's like an arm, it. yeah. So they move the right one forward and it grabs the food and pulls it back. And they move the left one forward and they pull it back. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the top, they've got their, the same teeth we have on them, the same bones we have them, but those can move. And then they have another set of teeth on their palate so where you touch, you take your tongue, you touch it with your mouth. Yeah. Imagine that split in half. So if you stuck your tongue up there, it would go all the way to your nose. And on either side, there are teeth. <sighs> and, they, and then those start to go back and forth. So your, your dinner guest, everybody's like a dinner guest, we sit there completely expressionless, <laughs> no, mo- no emotions apparent, no smiles, no laugh, no nothing, just staring at you. If yeah. they're, they're really snake-like, they can't even blink. Snakes don't have <laughs> eyelids. They just stare at you, completely expressionless. And then, and then a pot roast comes the size of their torso, and they, they grab it with their face, and it starts moving around, and the right side of their face stretches away from their skull and grabs it and shoves half of it in. And then the left side of their face stretches away from their skull and grabs it and shoves it in and they just alternate like that back and forth until it's gone i really want to see that i think if the people thought of a superhero called snake man they'd think of like slithering or hanging from trees or but i just want to see the eating and in a casual dining setting as well yes like exactly scra- oh pot roast the bigger the better and then kaboom yeah it's like one of those you get, get one of those like uh those food challenges yeah yeah where it's like you know it's it's a hundred dollars if you can't finish it but it's on the house <laughs> if you can and he's like challenge accepted and it's like, it's like do you have another what the heck i love that well hey would you be up for taking a quick break and then continuing with a bit more absolutely let's do it cool how smart is that dude Pretty smart is, uh, is what I gathered from it. In part two, we get into a variety of different things. Still somewhat on dinosaurs, but also his his overall 
uh, knowledge of the world kind of comes into play a little bit more. And I hope you'll come back for that and try that beer if you get a chance. A terrible idea. It's a hazy IPA from Fieldwork Brewing. Uh, and check out the the photos of it at thespacecave.com. The box is really cool, like I mentioned, with which is uh, frustrating to someone. Uh, in Well, I mean, most people, I think, that are into dinosaurs also are the type of people who know, like, humans weren't around when they were. So I always give that little bit of slack to any comic that seems to come from a well-researched point of view, that it's less like, here's when Jesus was alive, and then it shows humans with dinosaurs. You're like, ugh, I think you missed something there. However, if it's a brewery named Fieldwork, I get the sense that they're out there actually doing potentially some archaeological things. And um, anyway, I cut them some slack, and I think they're just doing it. Tongue-in-cheek, having humans flying around with pterodactyls and things like that. Again, thank you to Rob for the theme song, to Dan for putting this show together and putting up with my scheduling and hiatus issues and all this business. Uh, and those of you who support the show regularly, I'll maybe next episode I'll compile a little list and <laughs> say some names. I don't know how exciting that would be. But, um, if, and again, if you want to suggest beer or a topic or a guest or anything else, pings at the space cave or space underscore cave on Twitter. Okay. Um, this is a song that Emily Rose and I heard. And in the, the moment we heard it, I think the first note we were like, oh, this, I like this. And then we listened to the rest of it and we're like, oh yeah, that holds up. I hope you like it as well from Laura Gibson. This is called Two Kids. Thanks for stopping by the space cave. Two kids, no tricks, only rich in time Say never look back Throw out every song we have Make a move, trade a roof for the open sky Living on luck Tethering her hopes to pick up trucks Tell us, honey, you've got to know, you've got to know where you're going But you're my son, my northern lights, my southern cross And if we're gonna die, yeah, we're gonna die with a love song in our mouths Oh, 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 oh Hearts new start, every card is wild There in your arms The radio up and the windows down Loose hands slow dance under crooked stars We were clumsy at love It was a shaky two-step in a parking lot Tell us, dear, you better fear, you better fear it all But you are my sun, my northern lights, my southern cross 
Maybe someday we're gonna trade our 